Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, we're going to be looking at two passages today. Uh, the first one is in Ecclesiastes 5 as we continue and finish up that chapter this morning. But also we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 12, which is where we're going to start. So if you want to turn there first to Luke chapter 12. And the title of this message is Living a Fool's Heart. You know, throughout our, our lifetimes, as this uh, video kind of depicted, we acquire stuff, right? We acquire a lot of stuff. And, uh, you, I mean, you can go through your home and see all the things that you've acquired. If you want to understand how much you acquire, uh, live in a house for about 20 years and then move, right? It's like, oh, my word, where did we get all this stuff? My wife and I lived in our, our last house for almost 18 years. And uh, it's like, where in the world did all this stuff come from? And we have birthday presents, and Christmas presents, and iPhones, and iPads. And, I mean, the list just goes on and on. It can be infinite. Um, the amount of stuff that we accumulate and acquire over a lifetime. And, and all of these things that we so treasure have the potential of becoming something that children will quarrel about, that friends will be, friendships will be lost over, honesty will be sacrificed for, and marriages will break up over. And the fact of the matter is, when it's all said and done and we leave this world, remember we talked about living life backwards if I'm to look at the end of my life, I know that when I leave this world, I leave everything behind. Like everything I've ever acquired all of my life materially will be left behind. I'm not taking anything with you. You're not taking anything with you. Nobody sees a hearse with a U-Haul behind it or anything like that. It's all left behind. And eventually, all of this stuff that we thought was so, so important to us will end up in a landfill somewhere. Eventually, over time, you can leave this stuff to your children, but they're going to like, oh, I don't want this. It's, this doesn't mean anything to me. And your cars will end up one day being crushed and put into a landfill or recycled or whatever. But the fact of the matter is we all have this within us, this desire to acquire. We have a desire to acquire. It's just like built into our hearts. It is the constant and continual battle that is within us. And it might be over small, insignificant purchases. It might be over larger, very significant purchases that we have this battle. Because whenever you walk into a store, whenever you walk onto a car lot, the salesperson who eventually gets you to buy that product is not the person who's standing on the floor of that store or of that auto-arama plaza, whatever it is. You No, the greatest salesman for you to purchase something is right in here inside your mind. You are such a salesperson to yourself. And ultimately, whenever we plunk down a credit card or whenever we pay for something, you know, uh, the minimum uh, amount that you can pay for month after month and year after year, all of that is because we talked ourselves into something, right? We talked ourselves into that purchase. Maybe you went into a store and you didn't even have, you didn't even want to buy anything. You were just kind of like killing some time, and then you walk out with some minor purchase or maybe even a major person because you sales pitched yourself into buying that product. And we all have that tendency that resides deep inside of us. So the question is, uh, what is your sales pitch to yourself? Chances are you've pressured yourself, you sold yourself, you convinced yourself in some way that you needed this particular item that you walked out of the store or you drove off the car lot with. Now, here's why this is so easy for us, this, this uh, desire to acquire. Because the Bible uses a lot of different terms when it comes to things, right? He calls it materialism, money. Um, it can cause, you know, stuff, greed. All of those are issues of the heart. And it's one of the things that was depicted on this on this video is, is that really money, how we handle money, material things, how we handle material things are all really issues of our heart. Materialism says that the only way, the only thing that really matters in life is the acquisition of things. This is default mode of our, our hearts and we have to fight against it. Because all of us have a tendency, we just see things, we want things. As I've told you before, I'm an infomercial junkie, and it's not like I see something. It's like, I don't even need this item. I bought this, like, sprayer, all right? So I used to have, I had a uh, power washer, but my power washer kept breaking down. I had it fixed several times, got tired of it. And I saw an infomercial for this power washer wand. Stick it on the end of your hose, and it's supposed to spray out, you know, like 60 miles an hour. Bought that thing. It was like a trickle, man. 
and it was like worthless. It was the worst purchase I think I've ever made in my life, and, you know, it ended up in the trash, right? But that desire to acquire, talking myself into, listening to the sales pitch, making my own sales pitch to myself, saying, oh, this would, this would be so much cheaper than going out and buying another power washer and having mine fixed all over again and having all the problems I've had in the past. And so <laughs> over time, we confuse as we are building up our uh, we, we believe that life, liberty, and the purchase of happiness is found in stuff. And so over time, what we do is that we, can, we um, confuse our values with our valuables. They're not the same thing. We think that, you know, if I have more, I'll be worth more. If I have more, I will be happier. If I have more, all of my problems will go away, right? Now, let me just tell you. If you, have a, if, you, if you have a difficult marriage, buying more stuff is not going to make it better. If you're having a difficult time with your kids, buying more stuff is not going to make it better. You can't buy your way out of problems and difficulties, but yet that's the sales pitch we give ourselves. This will help, this will be better, and this will make it all work out in the end. And so what the Bible teaches us, and the danger behind all of this, is that because we have this acquired to uh, desire to acquire, it very quickly lapses into what the Bible calls idolatry. Now, idolatry is not you carving a wooden statue and putting it on the mantle of your fireplace and bowing down and worshiping it. Idolatry would be, I would define it this way. It is prioritizing our desires over our creator's design. Prioritizing my desires over my creator's design. Now, God gave you desires, and God wants to meet your desires. He wants to meet whatever your needs may be, but sometimes we just take it to the nth degree. I've asked a lot of young people, hey, uh, what do you want out of life? What do you want to do? All right, let's, let's start with where you want to be in life, and kind of we'll, we'll work towards that. And almost always it's, well, I want to be rich and famous. Well, why do you want to be rich and famous? I mean, this is a standard answer. I want to be rich and famous. Really, it's code for, I want to be in control, and I want to be comfortable. That's what it's really code for. And so here is the, the problem is that God is calling us to live a life outside of our comfort zones. He's calling us to a great adventure that requires risk and faith. And the invitation of Jesus is to take up our cross and follow him, but it's very hard to take up your cross if comfort is your goal and your God. It's not going to happen. And so the gods of control and comfort are likely in direct conflict with, the, with what the Lord God is calling us to do and to be in this new life that we have in Christ. Now this brings us to Luke chapter 12. Because Luke chapter 12 is really the New Testament version, Jesus' version of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to be going back to that in a moment, but I want to set some context before we hit Ecclesiastes 5 in this parable that Jesus gave to us. Now, you'll notice in chapter 12, beginning in verse 15, or 13, someone in the crowd asked Jesus, he's asked, he'd been asked a question, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So obviously, now in that day and time, if you, in a Jewish family, if you were the oldest brother, you would receive two-thirds of the inheritance, and everybody below you, they'd split up the other third, right? So here's a brother who's thinking, oh, this system isn't fair. I'm not getting my fair share. I'm not getting my fair cut. So he comes to Jesus knowing that he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, and he wants to get his opinion on this. How do you interpret this? Jesus, uh, tell my brother, he's like ordering him, go tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to him, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So in this parable, Jesus is going to challenge the idol of money, of materialism, of our stuff, this desire to acquire, and because our stuff can breed a heart of greediness. And a heart of greediness simply says this, enough is never enough. It's never enough. 
No matter how much you acquire, how much stuff you have, enough will never be enough. There's always room for more. And so Jesus is going to challenge that line of thinking. And the problem is we camouflage greed with statements like, well, I just want to acquire more and more because, you know, I'm just trying to, um, you know, set some financial security in my family. And I, I just want to leave something to my children when I, leave, when I die. And, and we have all these things that we say. Here's the problem with greed and what Jesus is really going to tackle is that, that greed is um, this acquisition of hoarding and self-indulgence. It's very difficult to unearth in our own hearts, right? It's very difficult to detect because nobody looks in the mirror and says, I think I'm a greedy person <laughs> because I have the acquire, this desire to acquire. I don't think enough's ever enough. I've asked many people, oh, how much is enough? It's never enough. So, sky's the limit. And so notice what Jesus does. He begins with a warning. Verse 15, watch out. <laughs> Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Why does Jesus start with a warning? Because he knew back then what we were just discovering. The seed of greed can take up residence in your heart and life, and it can go for years undetected. But it's going to cause a problem somewhere down the road, as we're going to see. Because when Jesus sees this, he then starts, he launches out into, um, he launches out into a parable. But before he does, he says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Well, doesn't everybody know that? Does it ever, does, do people really believe that their life is uh, consistent in the abundance of their possessions? I would say no and yes. No, there are many, everybody does not know that. And yes, there are people who absolutely believe that because left on their own, listen, money, materialism, stuff has removed God from the center of their heart and has put stuff, money, materialism at the center and the core of their being because that's what they are looking to to find significance in life, security in life, and ultimate satisfaction. That's why a person would say, what do you want to do with your life? I just want to be rich and famous. In other words, I want fame and wealth at the center, at the core of my being, because I believe this is where I'm going to find true significance, security, and satisfaction in my, in my life. And this is kind of the default mode of all of us because we have desires that God has given to us, but sin always takes our desires outside the context of which God is trying to frame that. And so he, Jesus launches into this parable. He says, verse 18, then he said, this is what, this is what I'll do. I will, well, let me back up in verse 16. He told this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. And so you'll notice this landowner is very successful, but notice the I statements. I will, it's mine, it's me, my, I. Those were the same statements that Solomon made about himself. He had all this wealth. He had everything money could buy. He had every resource you could ever think of. And it was always I, me, mine. I denied myself nothing because he's looking for satisfaction and significance and security. And so um, it notice it says that he'll take all of his stuff. He's, he's already filled his barns to overflowing, but he says, now I will build bigger barns. Uh, in our terminology, it's called storage units. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, you could barely find a storage unit in, Ohio, in America, but now it is a multi-billion dollar business so that it can house our stuff that overflows out of our garages and our basements, and we got to have an overflow over, outside our overflow, and so we build storage units. We have storage units to, just to house all of our, our stuff. And notice in verse 19, he gives the reasoning for such a decision, and the reasoning is... 
He wants a secure future, right? I'll say to myself, man, I got plenty of stuff. I can just sit back, kick back, eat, drink, be merry, and I can cruise from here on out in life. Now, now he will have all of his needs for many, many years to come. And thanks to disciplined planning and opportunistic saving, not only will I have enough for myself, but I'll have enough for my kids. It's, it's grand and good. Now, how Jesus um, ended the parable right there, we'd have thought, you know, this guy's a pretty smart cookie. Uh, he's a pretty good dude. But the story doesn't end there because the story never ends there. While the landowner planned ahead, he didn't plan far enough ahead. He was right. He did need to consider his future, but not in the way that he was considering it. He presumed that he had years to come. But in the parable, Jesus says that very night, God's calling him to the grave. He didn't, he didn't count on that. He didn't even think about it. He didn't even consider that. And so here is God's providential hand factoring into his good fortune and factoring over what he's been counting on for many years. Here's my point is he assumed his abundance of stuff assured him an abundance of time, but it didn't, did it? It's kind of like with us in retirement, you know, I'm, I'm nearing towards retirement, and so you're trying to save some money to, towards retirement. How much is enough? Who, who knows? Um, and how much is too much? Who knows? But there are many people who save all of their lives for retirement. They retire, and within six months, they die. And all that stuff they set aside and set back for retirement, now all of a sudden, it's gone. It's, it's gone into the hands of somebody else. Maybe a spouse, maybe their children, maybe somebody else, but it's, it's, we just don't count on that. We don't factor that in. And so right after this guy gets off the phone with his barn renovation experts, the Bible says he's run out of time, and he ran out of time before he ran out of stuff. And that's, that's the point. God asks the landowner this question, which is really has loaded implications for us. Notice what he said, then who will get what you prepared for yourself? And the obvious answer is somebody else. Somebody else is going to get it. Someone in the end is going to end up with our stuff that we've hoarded for ourselves instead of depending on God's provision. In the end, all of his possessions are going to be distributed to others. Watch this. Not because he was a generous man, but because he was a dead man. And that's the point of the parable. See, what Jesus is saying is greed so gripped his heart, but if he'd looked in the mirror, he would have never thought he was a greedy man. He was just a savvy businessman who just kept building bigger and bigger barns and hoarding more and more stuff for himself, thinking that he had a lot of time left here on earth. But when his life was called to the grave, he left it all behind, not because he was generous towards anyone during his lifetime, but because he had no other choice. He's dead. When we die, somebody's getting our stuff, whoever that might be. And so the parable directs our attention to the obvious. Eventually, everything we claim we own will be owned by somebody else. Now, notice Jesus closes this parable with a very stern warning. He says, not only did he call him a fool, but he says, this is how it will be, in verse 21, with you, with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. This is, this is Jesus' definition of a greedy person. A person who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Being rich towards God is Jesus' talk for being generous towards others while you have the chance, not after you die. It takes absolutely no faith, no risk, no generosity, Nothing to give up all your stuff after you die. But it takes all three of those to give up stuff while you're still alive. And that's the point of his, his um, parable. A greedy person is the man or woman who saves carefully but gives very sparingly. And so Jesus is trying to tell us if we don't become generous... He's not telling us that if we don't become generous that all of a sudden, you know, God's just going to give an unexpected death. That's not what he's trying to tell us at all. He's just trying to say, listen, God has given you a lot of stuff. God has blessed you in many ways. 
Now, how about developing a generous heart while you have the chance? Because every time you give to somebody else out of generosity, you're storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't get to it and thieves can't steal it, right? You, you are being, as he puts it, um, rich towards God. And so the landowner lost everything in his life. He had nothing to show for the, in the next life. And so Jesus, when he evaluated his life, he says, this guy was an absolute fool. So my question for us today is, how do we avoid living a fool's life, but rather live a life that displays the heart of God, and the heart of God is extremely generous? Extremely generous. Now, whenever I talk about generosity and, and you know, leveraging your stuff, people automatically pull back and say, well, Pastor, you don't understand, man. I, I ain't got nothing to give. I, I don't owe much. I don't have much. And I, and I understand that there are various times in your life and your income that you'll have more discretionary money than at other times. You know, when you're a family, you got really small kids and, and, and money's tight. I get that. God understands that. But it doesn't mean that we can't still be generous. This is not about the amount of money you give. It's not equal giving as far as amount. It's all about equal sacrifice. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And if you go to the um, book of Proverbs, turn right, and you're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we're going to pick up in verse 8 and, and finish this chapter. And chapter 6 really correlates with this. I'm not going to read out of chapter 6, but there are five things you need to know about money as we think about developing a heart of generosity so that when we end our life, listen, every single one of us who are kingdom citizens, remember I said live life backwards, think about the end. Every single one of us will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and we will give an account of everything of our lives. The words that we spoke, how we leveraged our money and our finances, what we did with our time, what we did with our talents. And the Bible says that some of the stuff will be wood, hay, and stubble and will burn up and a loss of rewards. And other things will be like precious metal and gold and rewards will be received. So we all have to be accountable. We don't want to, I don't want to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and Jesus say, man, dude, I gave you a lot of stuff. You're a fool, man. You, you, you just like kept it all for yourself, and you were, you were greedy in your heart. You never saw that. You never understood that. That's why, as we studied last week, we have to sit in silence before the Lord so that the Holy Spirit has an opportunity to speak to our hearts and say, you know what, Greg, there's a bit of greediness in you. There's a bit of materialistic angst in you. You probably need to cut that out of your heart, and let me show you how to do that. Fair enough? All right, so here's what Solomon says about money. Number one, the more you have, the more you want. <laughs> Oh, imagine that. Verse 10, who, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless, all right? So here again, God's given us appetite for things. Sin distorts that appetite. And when your brain, listen, when, when your appetite gets distorted, your brain exaggerates the consequences of not getting what you want, what you desire. For example, all of us who have had teenagers in our household have heard this phrase from our, our teenage son or daughter, Dad, if I don't get this, I'm telling you, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. No, you're not going to die. I, it's just not going to happen. You know, It's just like, I, I, I know you want that iPad or iPhone, but I'm, I'm telling you, can't afford it right now, and you're not going to die if you don't have it. Or, Dad... If you, if you make me wear that to school, I'll never get a date. Well, probably not true, but, you know, this is, this is the desire. Here's what Proverbs 30, verses 8 9 says, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, this is Solomon now, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is, who is the Lord? This is what happened to Solomon. Ma wealth, materialism, all that so gripped his heart that it became the center of his life. God got moved to the side. This was his pursuit. I denied myself nothing, thinking this would give me satisfaction and hope and, you know, in, in life and significance. And what I found out was it doesn't. It just didn't 
make me happy. It was meaningless. It was vanity. It's like chasing the wind. But we don't believe that, do we? We think, oh, it's going to be different for me. Let me try some of that riches and see if I, if I can't find some satisfaction there. You know, we have in God we trust printed across uh, the back of our American dollar. But for most people, the motto is simply not true when it comes to our finances. We might say that we trust in God, but our actions speak otherwise. And we put our more trust in money than we do in, in, um, in the Lord. And so we all need money. Okay, God gets that. Um, but the Bible's not against money. Money is amoral, right? Um, money's like a hammer. You know, a hammer you can use to build things, or you can use it to clock somebody upside the head that you don't like. Uh, it's just an issue of the heart, right? How you're going to use money, you're going to use it effectively and productively, or you're going to use it in a destructive manner. And so that's what the Bible is trying to guard us against. The Bible never speaks poorly of money. It only speaks poorly against the love of money. Right, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul said very quickly, hey, the love of money is the root of all evil. He didn't say money was the root of all evil. He said the love of money, a greedy heart, a materialistic heart, one that's chasing after something it's not produced, designed to produce, is what, um, it's when your heart and your hope is in your, your wealth. So your identity, your comfort, your security is all in it rather than, than in the Lord. It's kind of like, I liken it like this. It's kind of like chasing an oasis. You know, I've watched enough uh, movies where there's an oasis out there in the desert and, and uh, somebody, you know, they're looking for water and they see it out there and they run out and they run, run, run and they get to it and they find and discover it's a mirage. And this is exactly what Solomon is saying. He's saying is that we put so much effort and time into acquiring stuff and building up our nest egg and, and going after money, money, money because we think it's going to bring us something. That it's not. He says, you know what? I'm the wealthiest guy in the world. I could have everything I wanted. And I chased after that oasis. And when I caught up to it, I found out it was nothing but a mirage. It did not make me happy. It did not make me satisfied. It did not make me feel significant. It had no security in my life. It had nothing that I thought it was going to bring me. And so Solomon says, man, you, you, you got to watch this. This is the, the sad tale of every world-class athlete and star who, is, who has been honest enough to tell about how they went from blink, bling to bankruptcy some of the richest people are the most miserable. Some of the most affluent people are the most suicidal. Some of the most adored people are the most unhappy because they thought that wealth and fame would bring them all of those things. The desire to acquire. And so Solomon in verses 8 and 9, he says, you know what? Um, there's going to be the poor with you. Jesus said the poor are always going to be with you. And it's not we shouldn't help the poor. Remember Ruth back in the Old Testament and Ruth, due to circumstances, was a widow, and it was during a time of a famine, and she's out gleaning in the fields, which is the equivalent of going to a food bank or dumpster diving, and because she's trying to provide food for herself and, and Naomi, her mother-in-law, and the only way that you could get out of poverty in that day and time was either a family member bailed you out, or you married somebody that brought you out of poverty, and thus she was gleaning from the fields of Boaz, right? So she marries Boaz, comes out of poverty. But what Solomon says, here's what happens, is that we often, in our society, we have all this stuff, but the poor still get oppressed. And Solomon, remember, is at the top of the food chain. He's the king, but he understood that the government beneath him was corrupt. And because of the corruption of the government run by crooked hearts, you have a crooked government. And by the time it all filtered down, the poor were not getting you know, being ratcheted up, they were just still poor because everybody else was lining their pockets is what he says in verses 8 and 9. None of that going on around America, right? Like Amazon that just got busted for millions, they were stealing the tips of their drivers and using it to pay their wages. Got that going for them. Now, I'm not against Amazon. Good night, I spent enough money there. I got to cancel that. All right, number two, the more you have, the more you spend. We all have done, made dumb purchases in our lives, 
And some of the worst decisions we've ever made were fueled by a very strong emotional appeal. Because when it, when it comes to buying stuff, let's just be honest with each other. Like, it feels good, right? I, I, don't, I feel pretty good after I buy something. Now, I might regret it. Buyer's remorse when I get home. But what happens is psychologists call this focalism. And focalism means that when I see something and, and I want it, my emotions kick in. And when my emotions kick in, now all of a sudden sound thinking exits the door, right? So now I'm driven by, more by my emotions than I am by sound thinking. Now, this is true in a lot of different areas of your life. For example, when you fall in love, uh, all you could see was him and all you could think about was her and everything else faded in the background, you know, including, you know, his really horrible uh, credit card debt and her, um, you know, dating history. And when focalism kicks in, everything except the thing that you are fixated on kind of blurs in comparison. So what happens is uh, people, they see red flags, they see some things that are, you know, this potential spouse, their person they're dating, let's say they get engaged. Now all of a sudden they begin to realize some things about this person they didn't see at first because, you know, you had the tingles and it was just all emotion and, and, and you're just in overdrive. And, and then after you get married, you, you begin to discover some things about the person. It might be that they have a, you know, a, a drinking problem, a gambling problem, a porn problem, or they have uh, maybe... Um, um, anger issues. And then when they come to me for counseling and I say, uh, well, you know, did, did any of this kind of like, like, did you see any of this beforehand? Well, yeah, but I thought I... See, emotions drove the decision-making process. Sound judgment got put to the side. So one of the things I, I make Couples do when I premarital counseling, as I say, well, let's unpack your baggage because it is unfair to enter into marriage and then all of a sudden spring on somebody. Oh, by the way, um, I have a porn problem, or by the way, I've had anger issues, or by the way, I've got a mountain debt I didn't tell you about. That's called deception. No marriage needs to start on the footing of deception because that destroys the trust, which is the foundation of any relationship, right? So this is what psychologists talk about when they talk about focalism. It's like a car salesman. He has a strategy, right? He's gonna, what do they do? When you walk into a, a, a car dealership, first thing they say, well, what are you looking for? What kind of car? And they show you the car, and they open it up, and they want you to get that new car smell. Ah, breathe that in, brother. Uh, yeah, and they look at all the features of this car. And their second question is, what payment are you looking for? And the reason they ask you that is a loaded question because they'll get you to that payment even if you have to pay for that sucker for the next 20 years, right? So they, they don't care because they're making their money and they're making the interest. And so, you know, they, well, you know, I want to pay X number of dollars. Great. I think we can get you into this car. The next thing they want to do is to get you into the car and test drive it so that now you feel it, you look good in it. And it's like, man, I, yeah, this is, now your emotions are kicking in, which is overriding sound thinking. And you're thinking to yourself, but yeah, the price, I don't know if I can afford this. And then the salesman will say, how about coming into my office, sit down and we'll crunch the numbers because they know if they can get you to sit down that 99% of the time they're going to make a sale as opposed if you won't. Focalism, right? We make unsound decisions because our emotions are overriding us. This is why we spend a lot of money, right? <laughs> That's why you, the more you have, the more you spend. Because as Americans, we possess more than most people around the world and throughout human history could ever dream about, and yet we, we lose sight of that. And Jesus taught his followers a rather interesting definition of greed. He said that greed is the assumption that everything placed into our hands is for our consumption. And he says, it's not. That's the wrong assumption. But if, listen, if I can't control my spending, then I spend everything I've got paycheck to paycheck to paycheck. Number three, the more you have, the more you worry. <laughs> the sleep of laborers is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him, him uh, no sleep. And so Jesus, you know, was a carpenter and his father Joseph, stepdad. I doubt that they overbuild their hours. I doubt that they... Uh, padded their expense reports, and therefore, because they were honest carpenters, they could sleep well. Well, the same thing is true with us. 
You know, if, if our hearts get all wrapped up in money and my security is all wrapped up in my wealth and my accumulation, what happens when the stock market starts to fluctuate? What happens when the stock market, like in 2008, takes a big dive, right? Now, all of a sudden, I can't sleep at night. I'm worried. Listen, peace is a fruit of the Spirit, not the byproduct of accumulated wealth. The fruit of the Spirit is peace, not your accumulated wealth. I rest on the fact that Jesus says, if I will seek first the kingdom of God, that he, listen, he will provide me with everything I need regardless of what the stock market does. Just a thought. Number, number four, the more you have, the more you lose. Right? How many of you have ever watched uh, Hoarders? Right? Isn't, isn't it amazing how much people, people can hoard stuff and just, I mean, they can't even get into the rooms. They're like pathways. Now, when I worked as a plumber, I, I was in houses like this. You, you couldn't hardly even get to the kitchen. And, and so now all the, their stuff has overtaken them, right? And they can't bear losing any of it. You ever watch the show when they try to help them clean it out? I mean, they will sit there for hours. Should I keep this button? Should I not keep this button? What about this pin over here? Should I not keep this pin? Because their hearts are so... Attached. Now, we, we may not be to that degree, but listen, stuff can really get a hold of our hearts, right? And so if that's not enough, people will try to rip you off. Let me give you an example. Um, I have a little box here. Caleb's just biting at the bit for me to open this. He thinks it's for him, but maybe I will give it to him. Uh, so, so my nephew posted on Facebook uh, back in December... There was this, he, he's really artsy and does a lot of artwork. And he posted about this table. They said, man, if somebody loves me, maybe they'd buy this for me for Christmas. And I thought, you know what, brother, I do love you. And so I'm going to buy it and I'm going to give it to you for your birthday, right? So his birthday's in just a couple weeks. And so I did. I, I went online off this, you know, the, the link he gave on Facebook. I went online, ordered the table, paid for it through PayPal, waited, waited, waited. It never did come, never did come, never did come. Finally, I get this package in the mail, and it's from the company from which I ordered this table. But rather than giving me that art table, which, you know, I paid a fair amount of money for it, here's what they sent me. It's a little necklace of a, a swan with fake diamonds in it, like worth like 25 cents. This was my art table. Right. So people are always out there wanting to rip you off, right? We know somebody, um, my wife and I, she ordered boots, you know, on online for herself and somebody else for Christmas, and the company ripped them off. And so the fact of the matter is, uh, th there's just times you, you lose stuff, right? And it just kind of angst you, like it really makes you mad. It's like, like how, how do I get back at this company? And you, you can't because they, they won't answer anything. They don't, there's no way to track them down or anything else. Here's the number five is the more you have, the more you leave behind. He says the more you have, the more you leave behind. I'm not going to read all the passages. I'm out of, out of time here in just a few minutes. So, um, But basically, uh, obviously, you know, he says naked we came, verse 15, naked the man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he may carry in his hand. This too is grievous evil. So Solomon says, man, I come in here, I've got all this stuff, I've accumulated all this stuff, I've built all these buildings, I've done all these massive projects, and guess what, I'm leaving it all behind. I came into the world naked, I'm leaving naked. And if you don't believe that and you think you're going to take your stuff with you, just make sure you just pile it all up and I'll write you a check, throw it in your casket, and I'll take the rest. You'll get that in a minute. So Jesus says, you can't take it with you. Yes, God gives us money to pay bills, to take care of our families, to invest wisely, but he also gives it to us to be generous. Right? The ability to earn and enjoy money is a gift from God, is what he says in verses 18 through 20. So have you ever asked yourself the question, why does God give us so much? I mean, if you've been lacking something, you didn't hesitate to ask God, Lord, you know what? My bills are coming due. I don't have enough money. Please help me. I've been faithful to you. I've been putting first the kingdom. God, please help me out of this. 
And, and we expect God to help, right? We expect that he's going to come and he's going to do something miraculous in our lives in order to fulfill the promise that Jesus gave us. But why don't we ever ask that same question when you have an abundance of stuff? You say, well, I never have an abundance of stuff. Well, that might be because every time your paycheck goes up, you just keep ratcheting up your lifestyle, right? So uh, our lifestyle just keeps moving up and up with our, our income. The question is, at, one at what point, the Bible would say, is enough enough? I mean, like the guy at the bigger barns, couldn't he said at some point, you know what? I got enough stuff to last me more than two lifetimes. How about I take all this excess and be generous to those who are in need around me? He didn't do that. And that was Jesus' point. That's why he called him a fool. Because that's not why God gave him the extra. And so why do we have so much? And here's why. What the Bible tells us is the reason God has blessed us with so much is because he wants us to be generous. He wants us to be generous. Listen, here, this is fill in on your outline. Idols are not defeated by being removed. Idols are, being, are defeated by being replaced. It's not re try, I, mean, I can't remove my heart, but I have to replace it with something, right? I have to replace my greed, my materialism with something. So God has blessed you so that you might display his image through your generosity. How do you just, what's the mean image? I mean, the word image is the word mirror. A mirror has one, one, one purpose, to reflect something, right? So we have been made in the image of God, and God wants us to reflect his character and his conduct to the world around us. And one of the greatest ways we do that is through our generosity that opens up the doors to gospel conversations. This is why God has blessed us with so much. And so, based on this parable and based on what Solomon tells us, there is three different levels of generosity. Number one is spontaneous generosity. Spontaneous giving is giving when a need arises, right? A need arises. You have an opportunity to meet that need, but you have a decision to make, right? You don't have to, but you have opportunity to. Like if you pull up the stop sign and all of a sudden there's standing, somebody standing there with a sign around their neck or holding up a sign, hey, I need food or I need money, you have a decision to make. You can either decide to pull some money out of your pocket and give it to them, and, and so it's not an ongoing thing. It's just like a one-time thing with this dude and move on. Or maybe somebody says, hey, you, you find out there's a family that you know they need a car for a while. Theirs is broken down. You've got an extra car in your driveway. So you say, hey, take our car for a week or two weeks or whatever, however long you need until you get your car fixed. So that is, a, that is spontaneous generosity. You don't have to do that, but you have chosen to do that. But it's, you know, it's better than nothing. But it's, it's not a deliberate lifestyle commitment. It is really a reaction and often an emotional reaction at, at best. Right? You may feel guilty about the homeless person. You may feel guilty about the fact you've got a car, in your extra car in your, your driveway. And you want to help somebody out. Now, your motives may be pure, but sometimes our motives go along this lines. Well, you know, if I do this, God will give me points. Right? It's like PE class in, in high school. Man, if, dude, if you just showed up bodily, you're going to pass, right? You may not get an A, but you're going to pass. Man, if I do this, then God's going to keep track, and, and God will, you know, then repay me and bless me, and so that becomes our motive. Well, that's a bad motive, right? Our, our motive ought to be out of our love for, for the Lord and out of the desire to reflect him back to the people around us. Then the second is strategic generosity. Strategic givers plan ahead so they can... They can really be generous. They're intentional about their generosity. They contemplate questions like, how can I be more generous? How can I leverage my stuff to be more generous? How can I maximize my generosity during my lifetime? Because I know what the end is, death. I don't know if it's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know if it's going to happen next week or next year or 10 years from now, but I know it's going to happen. So I want to live my life backwards. I want to be generous while I have this time. I don't want to be like the landowner thinking I got a lot of time only to find out tonight I'm entering into the grave. So strategic givers, for example, are tithers. Tithing is when I give 10% of my income, known as the first fruits, to the Lord through the local church, right? So 
the Jewish people, they gave their temple tax, tithes, at, at the temple, at their place of worship. And so God says, this is first fruits. I, I give God the first and the best. I'm not giving him my leftovers. Uh, I'm giving him the first and the best of, of what God has blessed me with. And so that's very strategic generosity. And then there, from there, you know, it, it moves up. So Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled overflowing, and your uh, vats will brim over with new wine. Now, there's a difference between tithing and offering. A tithe is where I give my first 10% of all that God has blessed me with. A tithe is a, an offering is anything I give above and beyond that. That is also strategic generosity. I want to be strategic. For example, my wife and I, we, we tithe, but we also support some uh, uh, religious people or people and religious entities that we believe in. And so that, that's above and beyond our tithe. And we look for opportunities to be generous. Where did I, where did I learn a heart of generosity? I think I, I initially learned it from my grandfather because when my mother was, you know, raising five children, obviously we were poor. I mean, poor, poor, poor. Uh, we had nothing. But every single Sunday morning, my grandfather would show up at my mother's house. He would bring uh, donuts or, you know, those uh, glazed rolls for we, kids. And I know why he was there. Now that I look back in hindsight, it was to see how can I help you? What do you need? And so it's still to me a thought, you know what? My, my grandfather was not a wealthy man. He retired from Kaiser Aluminum in Hebron, uh, Heath. And, um, but he was a generous man. This is what God's looking for from us, right? He wants us to be strategically generous. And then lastly, sacrificially gener sacrificial generosity means you give to the, watch this, you give to the point it causes you to make an adjustment in your lifestyle. I know a lot, listen, our seminaries and our, our convention, the reason why the cost of our education in seminary for a master's degree and a doctorate degree is so much lower than state schools is because Wealthy people pour their money into those seminaries so that they can keep those costs down. They say, well, if I had a lot of wealth like that, I could do that. No, 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 no. These are people who readjust their lifestyles, scale them back because they believe in something and they're generous and they give. I watch that over and over and over. I hear people say, I want to have a heart for missions. I want to have a heart for missions. Well, how about putting your money in missions, right? And then go on a mission trip. And God will develop your heart for, for missions. Here's the lesson in life. And I close. You miss money, you misspend. You miss money that you poorly invest, but you never miss money given to meet a need in somebody else's life. You'll never miss it. Because generosity does something within us. It roots out greed and materialism, it, the spirit, it's, like, it's like scalpel in the Holy Spirit's hand, and it just cuts it out. The more generous you become, the more joyful you'll become because he's cutting that out of your heart. So ask yourself, at the end of your life, what story do you want told about you? Every decision you make you're writing a part of your story. When your life is over and you're called to the grave, what story do you want told about you? I don't know about you, but I don't want to hear the Lord say, he lived the life of a fool. I'd rather hear him say, he lived a life that reflected the heart of God because God's so generous. Let's bow our heads. Father, we, we, uh, we are challenged today. This hits us right where we live. Right where we live. But Lord, um, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you just ah, do your work in our hearts right now. Do your work. Lord, uh, may you challenge us as a church to look for ways that we can even be even more generous than we already are. We thank you, oh God, that we were one time sinners and we were in debt to you, a debt we could not pay, heading towards a debtor's prison called hell. 
where we would have to spend eternity paying back the debt that we owed to you and eternal God. But the Lord Jesus, you out of your generosity, you set the Lord Jesus, Jesus out of his generosity, stepped off his throne in heaven and came into the world from glory to, and riches to humility and poverty in order to pay our debt that we owe to you. And Jesus forgave our debt, dying in our place and forgiving our sins. And he picked up the tab. God, we want our hearts and our lives to reflect Jesus, the one whom we have put our faith, our hope, and our trust in, the one through whom we find ultimate satisfaction and significance and security. Lord, we know even now Jesus rising from the dead and ascending into heaven in that place he has gone to prepare for us, that he's still giving He's still interceding. He's still praying. And so, Lord, until we get to that place and that time in which we step into his presence, we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us new life, a life of righteousness. And so whether we are rich or poor materially in this world, Father, I pray that we would have a generous heart. Like the widow who came to the temple tax treasury and put in two small coins, everything she had while the wealthy were just throwing a few coins in and God you remind us that it is not the amount of money that is the issue, it is the amount of sacrifice. She sacrificed everything she put it all on the line rather than just giving out of her leftovers. God I pray that would be characteristic of us that we would be willing to step out of our comfort zones that we would risk faith in you and trust in you even in our material possessions and Lord that we would become sacrificial in our generosity with our time our talents our treasures that we might oh God have gospel opportunities to see people saved to see people delivered and healed and made whole again through the blood of Jesus being applied to their lives by faith I pray that for anyone who's watching online, oh God, who the Holy Spirit is speaking to their heart, that they have never come to faith in Christ. They've never reached out and received his gift of eternal life. I pray, Father, that this would be the day they make that step of faith and trust in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray and thank you and praise you. Amen.